0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today as a special guest, Dr. Eric Larson. Dr. Larson is an anesthesiologist in private practice in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is an assistant clinical professor in anesthesiology at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. He serves as the president of Kent County Medical Society, and he's the host of the podcast, The Paradox. That's D-O-C-S. Eric is married to a pediatrician with three of their own children and a foster son. And that foster son is one of the reasons Eric is on to talk with us. He's on to talk with us uh, about two things, uh, his experience uh, in uh, being a foster father and some insights that led him to understand more about the immigration debate, which we'll kind of get into here in just a minute. And well, he'll also talk to us near the end of the show about what non-physicians need to know about what's going on in medicine. Eric, thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Doug.
0: So your your story um, with your son, why don't you get us started by just talking about how that started, give us a little bit of context into that, and how that led you to understand some more things about the refugee crisis, uh, refugees in general, and immigration.
1: Right. Um, so, it dates back to probably about six years ago. Like, as you mentioned before, I'm married to my wife who's a pediatrician. We have three children of our own, and uh, so we're super busy. I work full-time. My wife works part-time. And so, I was never had any interest or thinking about um, fostering a uh, fostering a kid, for sure. I was at a conference here in town in Grand Rapids uh, at the Acton Institute. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Acton Institute. It's, it's, oh, yeah.
0: We're big yeah, fans of Acton.
1: <clears throat> yeah, they're great. And so they have a university they host every June, which I'd highly recommend anyone mm-hmm. go to. Um, just Acton University. So anyway, I was at the university learning about um, religion and then the intersection between religion and economics. And there's a table outside with Bethany Christian Services, which is a, um, a service here in the state of Michigan, which uh, does adoptions and does fostering. So I was talking, you're mainly out of boredom because there's nothing else to do between sessions. And um, I was, of course, had no interest in fostering kids because that's, we we're already busy enough as it is. But they had a thing with refugees. And so I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because my children go to a Spanish immersion school in our public school district. So they were pretty good with speaking Spanish. So I thought, well, you know, you could theoretically have a kid from Latin America because about half their refugees were coming from Latin America and the other half were from other parts of the world, whether it's Southeast Asia or Africa. And I uh, thought, well, that'd be kind of interesting. Maybe I should do that someday. And then I got home and, you know, super busy, whatever, just kind of put out of my mind. So then about three years ago, two years ago now, 2016, 15, I was, um, I'm an anesthesiologist. And so I was doing nerve blocks. And so it's basically do a, a procedure where you block someone, uh, someone's arm or something for arm surgery so they don't save less pain. So anyway, I'm talking to the patient. I you just kind of what do you do? And so the woman said, "Oh well, I work for Bethany Christian Services with uh, the refugee placement services." I said, "Well, that's very interesting because I was kind of looking into that a couple years ago, but you know, just we're busy and I just didn't seem like something I wanted to do." And she said, "Oh, you should look into it." I said, "Yeah, sure, whatever." <clears throat> so then the next week, I'm again uh, blocking someone and I asked, "So oh, what do you do?" And she said, "Oh, I work for Bethany Christian Services with <laughs> the, <laughs> the refugee placement services." And I thought, well, if that's not a two by four from God, I'm not quite sure what Mm, is. And so then uh, every time I walk in their basement, we have a bedroom down there, which we always call the the grandparents' room or whatever. But they didn't come that often. I thought, you know, with this little bathroom down there, we absolutely could do this, right? It seems like we're kind of, this is maybe what we're supposed to do. So I talked to my wife about it and she said, we should absolutely do this. And so we was that uh, a long conversation? You know, it wasn't. It, it was something that actually I talked about when I first went to that conference. Kind of mentioned it. We both thought, you know, I was just kind of busy. And uh, it was a, it was, um, it was a, a conversation that was maybe a couple days. It was actually pretty quick because she played about it and she said, you know, this seems like the right thing. Um, it's a time in her life where maybe we could do that. We have kids. I think it'd be kind of tough if I didn't have kids to try and do something like that. Right. So at the time we had a 14 year old daughter and then a 12 year old and a uh, 10 year old son. Um, <clears throat> so I thought, you know, you can, maybe we can do this. And so we talked to the Bethany Christian Services and uh, about it. And they, and so we decided to go ahead with the process, which turns out, of course, not surprising, it, unbeknownst to us is actually a long process, right? Fingerprinting and background checks and all <laughs> of this, you know, home visits and all this stuff. Yeah. As soon as you kind of get, get sort of into the process, they tell you, they start sending you emails about, you know, there are 10 kids need to be placed five from Congo and there's a you know girl with her daughter or whatever, you know, or, you know, siblings. And, um, in the way, once you're, once you're licensed, you can go ahead and just say, we're to we want to take those kids or whatever. And then they, you can get more background information as soon as you agree to it after you read the background information, then they come to your home and that's kind of it. So we we were in the process of getting the our second home visit and we were not anywhere near the licensing port part. And what we had learned in the the process is that if once you get these Latin American kids, most of them have been in the country about two years. And so, and for context, just about all the kids who are from Latin America are from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Very few are from um, anywhere else, even including Mexico. So these kids come across as teenagers usually around 14, 15 years old, they are captured at the border, they're detained, and then they're uh, because of their home situation, they're then given permission to qualify as refugees and they go into the foster system wherever they might be, whether it's San Antonio or Arizona or wherever. Um, or they you know get shipped up to Michigan. So most of them have been in the country about two weeks. There are a number of levels of uh, refugees. There's like a temporary refugee, a long-term refugee, ones that I don't, admittedly don't understand entirely because I, we kind of skipped a lot of that process. But generally speaking, you get a kid who's been here in the country two weeks. They don't speak any English or, you know, almost none. And, uh, and especially if you have, if you bring in a girl, they've usually been molested, uh, whether it's on the trip up or that's why they left or, I mean, it's pretty horrible. Um, and so you're dealing with someone who doesn't speak the language, who's a teenager, who's potentially been molested and, you know, get seen some rough stuff. And so it's, it's a, that's pretty challenging. So that was what, one of the reasons we thought, well, if we got someone Spanish, at least our kids speak Spanish, that might help a little bit. Yeah. Right. The transition for the kids. Uh, but anyway, they came to the second visit. They said, and well, so the point is, is that it's once the kids come in through two weeks, they're in court every week for, for months verifying their status they're going to make checks make sure they're not like fleeing and stuff like this and so you're pretty much in court all the time uh when they first come for a couple of months so we thought the last thing we want to do is to have that happen in summer because we're in michigan summer's fairly short it's about three months and we thought with our family it's probably not fair to our kids to to sort of like lose a summer and ability to go up and do stuff and so we thought we'll just start in the fall and in march or april yes march they came for a second home visit and said you know we have this kid who really needs, who needs a home. He's, he's 17 and uh, it's unusual because, uh, we were expecting a girl because there has to be two years difference in age from your oldest kid for obvious reasons. I mean, you don't want a 14 a year old daughter and have a, f- and bring in a 15 year old boy, you know, mm-hmm. things can happen. And so they want to have mixtures sure in age separation at least for a little bit. And so we had really anticipated that we we're going to get a girl, someone who's older, like f- 16 or so, or 15. And so we're a little surprised, it, but they said, the reason is this kid is sick. He has kidney failure and he desperately needs to find a stable home situation so that he can get um, a transplant because that's the only way he's going to get better. So um, we thought about it for a little bit and we, of course, we're not licensed. They said, we'll just rush the licensing process to get it <laughs> so that you can get this. But it'll happen like, you know, whenever you, you want it to happen, whether could, it's, you know, next week or whenever, which, of course, you know, we had our horizon set for the fall, and suddenly we're talking about April and you know spring breaks coming up and all this stuff. And so we we talked about it for a little bit, and you know every indication was this was a good kid, but he just was sick. He'd already actually been in the country for a couple of years um, because he was captured when he was fourteen, but was in foster care and now has sort of been bouncing around through the Department of hum- Homeland Security because of his um, his medical issues. He eventually ended up in Chicago. Um, on dialysis. And, uh, he had a condition which is, uh, causes kidneys to fail. That was unrelated is just a genetic thing. So, um, we thought, well, you know, if there's one thing we can probably manage is probably, you know, health issues. Uh, it's, it's the thing that scared me more was someone who is, you know, crazy and hitting the walls or, you know, like, yeah, like emotional and behavioral problems. Right. I mean, that was always my fear that what do you, I mean, how do you discipline someone who's been in your house for oh, two? Right. I mean, a lot yeah. of questions. I mean, there's violence,
0: Yeah, things about violence. You got to think about your kids. Yeah. There's a lot, right. lot to think there.
1: Absolutely. And my wife had gone to a, a tea or a coffee or something and talked to other foster mothers. And they're like, well, you know, we took some of these refugee kids and one of them, you know, ended up in the psychiatric hospital here because she was so traumatized by everything that happened. So she was, although it was okay, she eventually stopped because she had small children. She's like, I just didn't feel comfortable having, you know, a 16 year old around a five and a three year old in her house. Um, because you just don't know what's, they can be unpredictable, like, you know, any, especially when you don't know them. Uh, so, you know, that, that was, provides some trepidation for us to go into the process. but we decided to. Talk to some people. So, of course, the the biggest problem for us is that we have someone who's going to be dialysis three times a week. So, um, you know, how do we do that with a work schedule? My wife calls, of course, she's a pediatrician in town. So, she calls the head of the nephrology <laughs> division here in town. And he said, oh, I'm from Columbia. You know, I'd love to help and try and get this transplant done. We're already, you know, doing more transplants and stuff here. It's like, well, okay. And uh, then we still think the logistics thing is going to be the hard part. We talked to our church talked to our pastor and he's and told him a story and he said, well, this is absolutely 100% going to be our priority. We'll make sure it happens. He gets dialysis and back and we'll make sure as a church we do that. So yeah, we well, at this point, there's no reason not to. We kind of just committed to doing it. We're just going to go on spring break first and then we'll come back. And so, um, we actually called, we went to Disney for a spring break. Just that was sort of a trip planned and called him from uh, Tom story Island <laughs> to hmm. when he's in Chicago Uh, thinking that was the quietest part of the park, which it is, except the Liberty Bell steamboat comes by (laughs) more often than we thought. (laughs) It kept blasting. Uh, And he, you know, his English was not good. He'd been in the country a couple of years, but it still was not very good. Uh, So we got him and um, my wife, to her credit, in eight weeks, she sort of worked through the process and he had his kidney um, in about eight or nine weeks. So we got him in April and he had his kidney in mid to late June. Uh, what's interesting is when I first ran into those women who were, um, worked for Bethany and started thinking that maybe we need to embark on this process is about when he started on his dialysis in Chicago. Uh, so it was definitely feels much more like, uh, there's, you know, more at work for us, you know, as far as forces than, uh, that God was definitely moving things and and that that's was sort of how it was supposed to work out. And so, um, the, the other part, of course, is that, you know, entering and bringing another person into your family and household, especially a teenager, when you have one soon to have two teenagers in your house and a younger child, you know, how does that how the dynamics work? And it's, it's actually been pretty, it was pretty seamless aside from him being really tired initially because he was sick. But um, since then, it's been, it's like he's been here forever. And so, that's the the neat thing too, as a parent, and I, you know, I can only speak from my experience, and I've only done it one time. Um, the learning, I guess, to love someone else and to someone you didn't think you'd never knew, and you had sort of no reason, and uh, to care for them, and to, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's a pretty neat experience. Um, and so, you know, if someone were ever on the on the fence and thinking about it, I, I'd say just go for it. I think it's it's um, something we've, my wife and I, have grown as people, and so. That's kind of a long story, but that's. <laughs>
0: no, that was that was well, well elaborated there. How, how did your kids, uh, how did they what was their experience? And, you know, they spoke Spanish um, right. and they were able to communicate with him at least better than you. I mean, was it pretty easy for them to communicate? How was that experience for them?
1: Well, it was pretty good. But so here's the interesting thing. So he's from Guatemala and it turns out there are 21 languages spoken in Guatemala. I did not know this. I seem to just Spanish.
0: Well, I didn't know it until just now. Wow. So he speaks
1: mom. So it actually, it's, it sounds like M-O-M. It's like M-A-A-M or something like that. It's, so they have a lot of um, old Mayan languages. I'm assuming they are Mayan languages. And they're not dialects. They're actually languages. I mean, some people, like there are three dozen people who speak languages in like a really small remote town. So he's yeah. sort of out, he's from outside of the, the main town, of Guatemala City, Yeah, you know, with the capital. That's where, you know, everyone speaks Spanish and stuff. But as you move farther out into the hinterland, you know, it's more rural and, you know, just people kind of speak whatever their native language is. And so Spanish was really a second language for him. He learned some in school, but he wasn't in school very long. And uh, so he learned more of his Spanish when he got to the country and was surrounded by other kids in the foster program, like from Honduras or wherever, Mexico. And so for him, he was actually not that good at Spanish, which is he could communicate pretty well with my with my kids. My daughter's the one who's really good at Spanish Um but it, it's very funny. It's oftentimes, she'd ask him for help, and then she realized that yeah, his conjugation <laughs> is really bad. He can't spell. He can, <laughs> so, and he would know the words for lots of things. And and so for him, he's like he's like working in three different languages. So he's since he's been with us now almost two years, over two years, he's gotten really pretty good with English. Um, you know, needs a lot. He still needs lots of work on it, but. In West Michigan, you're not allowed to get away with um, knowing just Spanish because if you're in the schools here, like he was, and he just graduated from high school, uh, you need you need to know English. I mean, when he was in San Antonio in the foster program there, uh, he could get away because his foster kids were Spanish, spoke Spanish too. He could get away with just speaking Spanish. School wasn't very serious. I think a lot of kids spoke Spanish there, so he really had to learn English. Hmm. And then we went, he was bouncing around all the different programs again. A lot of people interpreters everywhere. He's at the group home in Chicago getting his dialysis. Again, there are people, their kids there from Bangladesh and from Mexico, and and the, all the people who work in the group home spoke Spanish. And so you never had to learn English. So that was a big transition for him. It was okay for my kids to speak Spanish, but ultimately it wasn't super helpful. Um, for the as far as them accepting him into the family, it was really kind of interesting. So my daughter was 14 at the time. So of course initially up to two weeks before this time, they thought they're getting a girl. So my daughter was excited to finally not have to just deal with two brothers. <laughs> she thought maybe she'd have another girl. Oh in the house.
0: man, that would be and, disappointing. Uh, I think for a daughter.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, but for her, actually she's pretty uh, easygoing, And so it turned out it was fine. She was very hesitant the first day. It was really kind of, she was uneasy about him because, you know, suddenly you have a 17 and a half year old boy in your, in your household. Um, but it turns out he's four foot 11 and about 105 pounds. And so he was never intimidating. <laughs> and so after about a day, she was totally fine with it. The boys were super excited because they were suddenly getting a brother. And naturally, they think, oh, he's going to be amazing at soccer. We can play soccer, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, he actually is pretty good at soccer. But he was he, since he was so sick, he didn't have any energy to do anything. He just slept a lot. So it's kind of like getting a cat in some ways. Oh. <laughs> but they were totally fine with it. And actually, I mean, to my kid's credit, and, you know, this is probably true of most kids. They adapt really well. I mean, they just, yeah. I, you know, you can suddenly say we're camping and the kids are like, all right, we're sleeping on the ground for a couple of days. And, you know, adults like, you know, it's just a bigger transition for kids. <laughs> oh, our kids beg just, to go camping. It's, we're right. the ones they have to in. Right. But I mean, you know, they, you could put them in any sort of situation and they adapt. I mean, everybody to some extent adapts, right? Suddenly you have. Right, yeah. And I see this with patients. Like, you know, somebody suddenly has an amputation. Now they have well, after a while they get over and they're just, they're just used to having the one leg or whatever. I mean, they're all just sorts of things like that that you get, yeah, right. but for the kids, it was like, it was almost instantaneous. It was like, and so then there's no excuse for my wife and I to, you know, not have it work out. So yeah, that was really cool. I mean, that was a really cool thing to show sort of how your family is not as static as you might think it might, it is, you know, sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point. A really good lesson about, uh, you know, kids, They're resilient on the, most of them are pretty resilient over, overall and they're able to adapt in a way that we that probably surprised i'm sure there was ways that they surprised you as well you know through the process um because you think you know them and then you put them in a, in a very different situation than you all i mean you all expected the kid to speak spanish you expected a girl there's just a number of things that uh were you know surprises along the way uh for for that experience so uh yeah definitely kudos and congratulations and just that's just awesome to hear that kind of a story um is is there anything about where he is not physically on the on the globe or anything like that like where he is today like where where has this led your family to and then then let's talk a little bit about uh the the broader topic of immigration and refugees
1: right so um you know, our, it's been a couple years now. So he's, so he graduated from high school. So he was kind of behind and had to catch up. So he graduated when he was 19. He hasn't yet, he turns 20 later this month. He's still within the the Bethany program, but he's now independent living. He's not, I guess, technically a foster, um, foster child anymore. He just, nothing's changed except he's paying us to live here. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he's still, you know, part of the family and helps out and the kids are, are older and it's sort of like, it's kind of weird when he's not around. He's got, now that he's graduate, he's got two jobs. And so his, his focus is, um, entirely on green. So he had, I, mean, I guess it sort of transitioned to your next question. So the, the, tr- the difficulty we've had with him have been ones that I never anticipated as all things are in life. Right. And so all the things you worry about fitting in and, uh, all that sort of stuff that you know, discipline, all that kind of things, never a problem. We taught, you know, he went to driving training courses and all that stuff. And so he drives and all this stuff. But the biggest hurdle has been him and his family. And so he left Guatemala, he entered foster care, but he is, did not lose contact with his with his mother, his father, his brothers, uh, sisters, and um, I don't know, it seems like about a million cousins and uncles, most of whom many of whom I should say live here in the United States illegally, uh, in Miami and New York or, um, I think in Texas. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of cultural things that we've been dealing with, like witches, there's a lot of witchcraft. He's a Catholic, but he still has a believes in witches and their powers over him and his family and things go wrong. And so they have to pay off witches who, you know, It's was like, he's got to send $300 back home to pay off a witch to reverse a curse or something like that. Um, and then he had, to, of course they had to pay the, I don't want to say loan sharks, but they, the coyotes, I'm not sure what the term is, but the people who got him into, into the United States. So they charge, you know, five, $6,000. Now it's much more, but, um, to get across, and then once you get in, then you have to send money. Well, he, he got caught, so he wasn't able to legally work until just recently. Mm-hmm. He actually just recently got his green card a few weeks ago. So now he's a permanent resident in the United States because um, he was a long-term refugee, obviously, for a while. But anyway, so these kids come, you know, so his family, he talks to his family, and they're like, you know, now these guys are coming, they're going to take our land, and they're going to do all this, that, and the other thing. And it's obviously a very um, uh, a bad social situation, which is why he left to start with, and so they're very dysfunctional alcohol and all kinds of other problems. And so, um, it's always a struggle for him to sort of, as a, someone who, if you're trying to think back, what are you like when you're 18? You thought you could probably could fix a lot of things you probably can't fix. And, uh, you know, anything that's going wrong at home, he feels like he should be doing something about him. Like, you know, you're 1500 miles or whatever, 2000 miles from home. You can't, you can't, you know, help someone with alcoholism, <laughs> for instance. Um, he sends money back to pay off loans and they end up spending on booze or something like that. So there are a lot of problems uh, with that. And so that's really been the challenge for us has been sort of helping him um, with the spiritual aspect and to sort of deal with the cultural problems as far as um, the witchcraft. And the. I think it's a lot of probably the Mayan influence um, in Latin America. So,
0: you yeah, know, a, a little syncretism going on there with, with the, the- or the Catholic faith and, and whatever, whatever uh, other religious, I don't even know what the word is, <laughs> any of the other religious aspects going on there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what, what do, um you know, having this experience, I mean, obviously you've, you you said there was a lot of court stuff and there I'm sure you did some research and kind of understanding either where he came from or just this whole process in general. Um, what do people misunderstand about refugees, about immigrants? I mean, what have you learned that has kind of uh, affected your thinking on this on the issue as in general?
1: Yeah, so. I'll first preface it by saying that I have only anecdotal evidence or, you know, I mean, I just have him and the people I've met and have met as some of his relatives. um, And I've met, and I hear the stories from him as sort of other people he knows who are, you know, illegals or um, or legals. And so I can only comment on, on them. You know, I don't, he's not an MS 13 gang member or something like that. So I, I can't talk about any of that stuff, but I can tell, tell you that a lot of the immigration situation is very interesting because of the, for instance, um, the, I believe is the dream actor uh, that was instituted by Obama, uh, it, it would immediately send back people who were uh, over the age of 18, but it would allow people who are not, who are under the age of 18 to stay. And so uh, they'd enter the foster care program. And so what happened is you had these unaccompanied minors uh, who'd come across, and these are not three-year-olds, these are teenagers, right? So they came across on their own and usually with help. And then when they're captured, they just go into, they go into the foster, um, foster care, uh, system. So a lot of the, um, and a lot of, a lot of my son's relatives, uncles and cousins, they're, they're going back and forth frequently. I mean, I guess I would say more into than out, but they definitely, there are a lot of them (laughs) who are here and, um. He's always talking about, you know, my uncle. I'm like, well, which uncle? he have got like eight because, you know, both his parents have eight kids, eight siblings and, you know, they've all got kids. And so they're, you know, that's why he's got like 100 cousins or something like that. And they're all coming to, for work because there's not any opportunity in Guatemala. So for the most part, these are not criminals. These are not people who are coming here for any reason except to try and get money. And either one either of one two things. One is to make some money here and maybe live here for a while. Although generally when they come, they don't plan on staying. Uh, that's been my impression. And then, and then the other, I mean, they're mainly just here to make money and they don't, and they have to live in the shadows. Uh, but they're just here to, to make a buck. They're not here to in any way to scam the system. They don't even know there is like a welfare system. I mean, the, the ones I've met are totally, um, ignorant about most things. The United States, as far as, you know, having anchor babies and all this kind of stuff. I met, I don't doubt there are people who do know that, but these are just kids who are coming across because they're, families are abusive or their families are starving to death. And so they're sending their their kids um, and they know if they send a kid and they get caught, they still can stay.
0: Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings help us get the word out. And now let's get back to the show. So they're seeking, they're sending kids or the kids are choosing to go if they're older because they're seeking opportunity that's more about their own Betterment and well-being than it is about some, like you said, scam or taking advantage of particular welfare programs or whatever. Even you know, obvi- I think it's pretty. It's probably understood that there are some people who are deliberately trying to take advantage of what welfare systems exist, if if they sure. exist for any immigrants. But, but what you're saying is that your experience is that there's a lot of people that that's just not who they are.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in one of the kids at his at his high school, he actually was. Um, His parents had both abandoned him. He was being raised by his grandparents who were abusive and upset with him and tough. And so he tried, he had had to dig a tunnel out of his house to escape and then got to the United States on his own. So, I mean, so this is a, these are the situations people are living, leaving oftentimes. Um, and so they're, they're just here to make a buck. And we, we actually visited a number of his relatives in his, a couple of his cousins in Miami when we were on, um, because he had a kidney transplant, he actually got a Make-A-Wish trip, and so we went down to, his Make-A-Wish was down in uh, Florida. But anyway, we stopped in Miami for a couple of days and ran into his cousins, which one thing is interesting that that they didn't know any English, and they'd been in the country for two years, which I found amazing, because you never see that situation here in this part of Michigan. I mean, you can always say something to someone, and they're going to know sort of what you're saying if you're talking like, you know, hello, my name is Eric, and they, they didn't know anything. Um, but one of them was a gang member. and He's like, that's part of the reason he came because he's like, I didn't think I could do that anymore. And so now just working, I don't even know what he's doing, but like construction or something in Miami. Um, and so I don't, you know, I think I think the the impression is that these people are coming for, to sort of scam the system in some way. And I think they're just here to make a living. I, I think you can have sort of, um, I think it's reasonable to have, have qualms about having all these people coming and not documenting. And they might be criminals and these things and you need to be better. Um, there needs to be better vigilance at the border, things like that. And I, I don't disagree with all some of those yeah, things. Better accounting methods. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's probably more reasonable to say, well, what do you know, for one thing, you know, when Trump says, well, we just need to make, keep all these, we only want the good ones. Well, I don't know. These per- people, you know, work like crazy. I mean, my kids work, working two jobs and mm-hmm. a lot of people are working a ton and they're, <clears throat> they're obviously, you know, just working in, for cash. I mean, he's not cause he's legal, but the other, his other relatives are working just for cash or something. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I have a hard time feeling the, a lot of animosity towards people who are really tr- kind of living the American dream. I mean, I agree that they didn't come the right way, but that's pretty much because our country is kind of a goofy way of, 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 mm-hmm. uh, allowing the quotas or whatever you want to say, you know, maybe that's not the right way to do it, but that's, these are people who are pretty desperate. And so they're just looking for a way to get better. And I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people they, they point to you'll see people on the left point to these two year olds who are coming across being separated from their families, and it, I'm sure that happens. Um, but I think a lot of these undocumented immigrants, and we're just talking about people from Latin America, are are these teenagers coming across, and they weren't coming. You know, it's it's not the situation that the left paints or the right. I mean, these are not people coming. These are not like gang members and stuff like the gangbangers. So I don't know. I think it's just as most think it's a lot of her hyperbole uh, on the uh, about the issue and it's it's not helpful because you don't the average american has no idea really what's going on
0: yeah i mean you've got the problem of you know our our attention span lasts about you know half a second if we're lucky. um, And that's if we've just had coffee, you know, and, you know, so people, so memes just distort the truth. You have headlines that, you know, I've read so many headlines and I'm like, wow, I got to read that. And then I'm like, that that was a very poorly written headline, whether it's (laughs) clickbait or whether it's just like, I don't know, like there's just so many, like, you know, and then, but here's the thing. And some people just read the headlines, and and I do this too. Like I'll read the headlines that say, you know, bacon is now the best thing in the world for you, and I will just be like, well, that's the headline I want to see. So I don't need to right. read this article. Um, well, clearly, there's
1: nothing to read after that. I mean, that pretty much tells you
0: everything. Well, if it's about bacon, I think that's you know, right.
1: We're okay with that. You know, that's true.
0: <laughs> but you know, and I and I think it's just, yeah, you know, maybe it's not human nature, but I think it's just our our attention spans are such that we. We will read the headlines. And we're like, oh, okay. Well, somebody researched this, and that's their conclusion because that's what the headline says. Or uh, even, you know, we 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 have sound bites on any you know news media, and so you have the problem of uh, information simplicity becoming what's being distorted. Uh, and so, and and people just like run with their assumptions about about people. You know, you know, you talked about it's hard. You mentioned a moment ago. You know, you ha- you find it hard to have animosity toward people who are in desperate situations. And trying to make a better life for themselves, and you know, I, I know that you know, some people will talk about, well, they need to get in line and come over the right way, and uh, other people who are a little bit more adamant will will argue against more immigration. Um, I won't I won't go into the like, should we have open borders? That's not really a conversation for today. But you know, right. the the like, let's increase the amount of allowance or or how many we we're, we're accepting in. People will go into this argument and say. Well, they came over the wrong way or they they already violated our law and therefore they should like it's just like there's zero tolerance and there's zero mercy. I'm like, if you're a Christian, like I get it. If you want there to be better accounting, better security, it's okay to have those qualms. It's okay to bring up those those issues. Um, I'm not I'm not going to advocate that we just like literally don't like erase the border. I don't mean that when I kind of advocate for those things, but like really your heart, like is the heart of Jesus really that we should just like our first impulse is to simply look at a person who violated the law and say, oh, well, they violated the law and they should know better. And oh, well, that just automatically disqualifies them because that it was a felony.
1: Right. Well, and, and I mean, no, you know, I think the point is, what if it's an unjust law? Or what if it's sort of unjust, right? I mean, if you want to look at for the right. the, the, uh, the what's the right level of immigration, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anyone does. Um, so I I totally agree. And and from my standpoint, um, I'm thinking to myself, well, for me, I've got a I've got a room in my house. I've got room in my heart, right? And so I think this is probably the right thing to do. And so I don't. I'm not going to let my politics interfere with taking care of a real person. I mean, I. You know, they're already here. They're already through the system. It's already done. I mean, I could refuse to see to help them, but they're already, you know, already there and suffering. Why would you not help them now?
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we could, of course, we could talk about whether or not it's a just law. And even even if for some reason it seems like it's a pretty good balance of allow, you know, we could come to this like agreement that the law is pretty good. I don't agree with that. But like if we have this sort of theoretical argument about it. But you, you are dealing with people who are right there in front of you. You know, like I was de- arguing with somebody on Facebook about this when Trump went when the, the fiasco over um, the younger children being separated from their parents and things like that. And, you know, I, I learned in that scenario that the law was designed to give people discretion so that these kinds of situations could allow for the merciful aspect of oh this is a child we can't just separate them from their parent versus oh this is this is somebody who's totally ripping off the system let's be a little bit more strict about it and they're not you know it's not a three-year-old it's a 17 year old and they're you know their their parent or something or whatever right like there's discretion mm-hmm. in the law for a reason the law is not meant to uh in, in those cases the law was not meant to simply be a law that you violate or you don't violate there was deliberate gray area trump made that a non-gray area which was what the problem was uh and so i mean hey if <laughs> i just i i look at i had this argument with somebody on there i'm like you know People are talking about these, what was the the anchor babies or, um, or they bring a child with them that they sort of find a loophole. And this was new. I heard I read through articles that this this was news that this was happening. It's like, oh, well, if you bring a child with if you bring a child with you, there's a lot less lenience. There's a lot more leniency. They won't separate you, blah, blah, blah. And that's what, you know, is happening. I'm like, well, it's too bad those children couldn't tell their parents about your Facebook status that told them that they were breaking the law (laughs) ahead of time because, you know. If you, if you could just reach out to those children and tell them that their parents are about to break the law, then maybe this problem would stop. You know, obviously, sarcasm there. But I, I'm just like, really? Yeah. These are children here. Like, let's deal with the problem we have. You know, um, Jer- Jeremy Courtney founded an organization called um, Preemptive Love. And uh, their, their motto is, love first, ask questions later. And uh, I know that that might not appeal to a lot of people, uh, but it, it appeals to me and it seems to somewhat characterize the heart of Jesus.
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the story of the Samaritan, right? The person just laying bleeding in the ditch, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to ask them where they came from, and all, <laughs> I mean, I I totally understand that. Maybe after you take care of them, you yeah. say, okay, well, how did this happen? Is, is there some way we can prevent this from happening in the future? What you know, what sort of policies need to be enacted so that we can prevent this? But you're not going to just say, well, hang on a second, I know you're bleeding to death, but I got to figure out where you came from. You know, but I mean, I think yeah. a lot of times we sort of overthink some of these things, and we just need to yeah. kind of just do the right thing and just and worry about. Worry about things later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up the story of the Good Samaritan. This is just a hair off topic, but it it strikes me as interesting that I recently heard a sermon uh from our pastor, one of our pastors at my church about the Good Samaritan. He was talking about how wide the path was from Jerusalem. Where, where, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't draw the off the top of my head here where they were passing from. They had to go through Samaria, but the road It's not a road like a two lane highway with ditches on either side. This is like a path.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, And so with the people who actually didn't see him and they said they walked over to the other side, like they really had to go out of their way. I mean, we're talking about a trail here and they really had (laughs) to go out of their way to avoid him. And, you know, it really does seem like a lot of Christians really want to go out of their way to find fault with people who are in desperate need. Um, so uh, anyway, that's a little hair off topic there. Um, so since we're already off topic of that <laughs> <laughs> of immigration, why don't we jump into the the topic, uh, that we also want to talk about, which is, you know, you're a doctor, you're an anesthesiologist, and you're in the medical profession. And we could probably have a whole episode on, uh, what we need to know about the medical profession, uh, healthcare and things like that from your experience. So we'll, we'll leave that to a, a shorter amount of time for today. Um, so what, what do we need to know? I mean, I'm not a, you told me a few things before we went went, went live. I'm like, oh, really? I did, didn't know this. Um, and it's it's interesting because until it becomes newsworthy, I probably wouldn't have heard about it. So what are some things that uh, we need to know about about the state of medicine in the U.S.?
1: Well, the short answer is it's messed up. There's a lot there are a lot of problems. Um, but specifically,
0: well, i I don't think you need to be the expert. I mean, we know this. Oh, you, oh, you I mean, ever, ever, that? this is what the left and the right agree on. It's messed up.
1: Right. I mean, obviously, the solution is uh, the the solution to the problems are vary. but uh, I think you know the the if you want to look at the 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 delivery system in a whole as a whole, the biggest problem we have in healthcare is that we have a third-party uh, third-party payer system, which I think most of your audience is aware of. That you have either government payers like Medicare, or Medicaid, or you have uh, commercial payers who pay the bills, right? And so that you pay a premium to them, they pay the bills, and they coordinate the care. Of course, by doing that, you add this you have this intermediary between the physician and the patient, uh, and it distorts everyone's decision. Uh, it's hard to to figure out. Scarcity—it's hard to figure out the real value and price of things, and people are uh, maybe less judicious about sort of their own health and and the decisions that are made, and it causes a lot of a lot of problems. It causes problems not only for the for the patient that you know, premiums keep going up and um, and that they're not able to get the the care they may want, and that they but that it also causes huge distortions and problems for the physician. And I. I think patients don't realize that physicians don't like the system. I mean, I think physicians were definitely complicit in adopting the third-party payer system because it seemed like an efficient way of getting payment from an uh, insurance company. It paid you know right away. I don't have to hound at each specific uh, patient to make sure they send me their check. If they decide they got angry or they moved or something happened, you know, you're, it's a lot more efficient to get it from one entity. Um, and so that's why it was, I think, seen as a probably good thing by most physicians back in the day in the 60s. Uh, but with the course that, that enters on all kinds of problems for the physician now, because now I'm not practicing the way I want to practice for you as a patient. So if the, if I think this is the best medication for patient, I can't give it to you because your insurance carrier says you have to. That's your third line drug. You have to do two. Try two others first, or you need to have two other tests, which we may or may not approve, or uh, you need to fin- fill out forty pages of demographic information on your patients. And there's certain metrics you have to meet that have no bearing on your health. Uh, so there are all kinds of things we have to gather. Like, why do I need to tell you if I'm wearing a seatbelt? I'm here for my urology appointment because I can't pee, You know, right? But they have to collect this information because for billing reasons um, and demographic information. So all these sorts of things, you know, you add up one of those little, little tiny things and then you add a thousand more. And suddenly you're now, if you're a physician, you're spending 30 to 40 percent of your time as a as a data collection agent uh, and, and not actually treating someone. And so what it, you've, everyone hears about the shortage of physicians in this country, but you can imagine if it's because you've increased the paperwork, you've doubled it. Well, now you've cut your physician population in half. And so now it takes, you know, twice as many people to do it, the same work that it took, took everyone before. And so
0: has the digitization of all of these health records, electronic medical records, actually it increased the amount of workload for doctors, or has it actually helped diminish it a little bit over the, I guess, the past decade?
1: It has absolutely increased the workload. And so what's interesting is because we have this third-party system, and you've hit on it maybe by accident, accident, but the reason that it's so much harder for physicians to get stuff done is because they're now gathering information that is for billing purposes, So when you have electronic health records, you can imagine there are one of two goals you have. One is you have a documentation system that makes it simpler for doctors to find information, critical information uh, on the patient to make better decisions and to um, provide referral information for other physicians. You know, so like you have some sort of you, it hurts every time you, um, you know, you eat something. You want to make sure that you send when you send someone to the specialist, the surgeon that they know that's the problem. Right. But now you have two choices of physician. You either have a system that works like that, or you have a system that maximizes your billing. Well, unfortunately you can't get through in medicine without making money and to pay your staff. And so Naturally, you're going to have to pick – you have no choice, especially if you're um, owned by a healthcare system, to have a record system that it maximizes the billing and make sure you, all those boxes are checked. Because as most people know, it doesn't matter um, which doctor you see, the price and the cost is exactly the same, right? I mean you don't go many places in the world and, and expect to always pay the same price when you go – like no one expects to go get the haircut. You always ask the person how much it costs, right? Because it's not like a haircut's always $10. Some people charge 30. Some people have a fancy salon, it costs hundred. And so, but in medicine, it's not that way. So if you're if you're charging through Medicare or actually almost any commercial payer now, they'll pay the same no matter if you're good or bad or in between. So that's why you have to maximize all these boxes because that's how you you can build more. So if you've gathered more information on someone, like if I just ask you if your nose hurts, you say, you know, my nose is stuffed, and that's all we talk about, then I can't charge much. But if I ask you, 10 other health systems like, well, how's your heart? How's your lungs? And, and maybe it only takes me an extra three minutes, but now I can charge you a level three. It's supposed to level one visit. Maybe it's three times the reimbursement. And so, of course, you're going to, you're going to try and get as much as you can because, you know, you only have a, that's the way the system works um, to maximize your billing. And so-
0: Is that this, is that, that's standard in most p- places? Like they deliberately go out of the way and ask a whole bunch of other things and they- try to bill you or is it just, or are they doing it now because, well, this is the tier of billing that I'm going to end up doing because, you know, whatever the the symptoms are and I'm going to go ahead and do these other three things because I'm already charging them at this rate. Right.
1: I mean, if you're, if you're a primary care physician, there are certain, um, you need to average a certain amount of, um, charge per, you know, per visit to keep the lights on. Right. Uh, based on your payer mix. So if you have government payers or commercial payers or you know, Medicaid or whatever. And so you're going to – there are a lot of times you're going to gather information that is probably not critical to the to that patient's care, but that by gathering that information, it will result in a higher charge capture. So it's not like – it's not fraudulent in any way. It's because there's – potentially you're going to gain information that would be useful to you in the diagnosis and the treatment plan. <clears throat> but you're more likely to sort of gather more information than you need and if you have it on hand, and you and you have it, you can just sort of—I don't want to say copy and paste—but if you, you know, you say, "Is anyone change your health?" Then all those things you said before in your social history, like whether you smoke or not or whatever, those all just get carried over the next exam. Then automatically, you moved up to the next tier of of charges. And so, um, these ha- these electronic health records are essentially designed to maximize the billing. And so, there's a lot of information there that is of no clinical benefit. Um, for, you know, if I come in and break my arm, it doesn't matter if I, you know, wear a seatbelt, but I'm still going to get asked that sort of question possibly <laughs> or the family history.
0: <laughs> is there anything, is there anything I as a patient can do to avoid that? Or is it just, it just, just what it is what it is and accept and,
1: it. And this is the problem. This is the insidious.
0: Like I can't get like the, the like, with, you know, I'll call Comcast up and be like, hey, what is your like secret? You don't publish it cheap rate for like four channels. I yeah, can't sorry. do that with my
1: doctor. <laughs> it's against the law. And that's, and it's actually against the law if I try and charge you a a price. Right. So I can't charge one person. Or one. Yeah. Person I didn't know that. Another, okay. Right. So, uh, yeah. And, th- and again, that's because we can't have private contracts with each individual, uh, patient. Uh, so that's one problem that I, I feels right. Every feels like the r- doctors rushes through and like doesn't talk too much because, you know, they're trying to see so many patients. Uh, the other thing that people don't know, so medication shortages. And so it's actually one that has been driving me bananas as an anesthesiologist for years. And I never knew why. And until I started my podcast, I, I had no idea. I think we, we think that these medications caused by the FDA or regulations or things like that. And, and those all do play a role in the, the shortages. But it's much more, um, oh, I guess it's a serpentine sort of story to figure out what happens. It, and it kind of goes back, if you don't mind me going back in history a little bit, a pretty interesting story, and it's my episode five, of my podcast, which I um, recommend anyone listening who wants to learn a little bit more. But uh, essentially, if we think back to a hospital in 1920, a 1920 hospital looks nothing like a hospital does today. Today's healthcare systems—it's a system, right? It's not just a hospital. They're all philanthropic. They're very small. It was run by nuns or doctors or nurses, and it was—it was not very sophisticated as far from an administrative standpoint. I mean, also at the time, there was not a lot of equipment that you could put in a hospital, so. So what happened, of course, is these hospitals needed bedpans, sheets, syringes, needles, whatever, basic supplies and basic medications they had back then. But they didn't have any way of getting group purchasing uh, or you know, bulk discounts. And so what they did is they formed these co-ops uh, called group purchasing organizations that would then purchase, make purchases for, say, 20 hospitals in the city of New York or uh, you know, in the, the state of Wyoming or something like that. So these hospitals would then utilize that to get some cost savings, kind of transport ourselves back in the 1980s. And now suddenly hospitals are no longer look like what they do back did back in the 1920s. So now hospitals are much more sophisticated. They're generally um, large health systems with um, surgical centers. They've got imaging, laboratory, all sorts of the things. And also the, the amount of medications on formula has exploded since the 1920s. And so. Um, what's happened now is that these group purchasing organizations have also consolidated, too, not surprisingly. So now you're not servicing 20 hospitals. You're probably servicing, you know, 200. And so only, there aren't as many group purchasing organizations uh, as there were before. There are also these things called pharmacy benefit managers, which I apologize for all, all the different terms. But this, these are the people who buy bulk medications for pharmacies. So these are absolutely in every way uh, – middlemen. So these are people who do not produce anything, do not store anything, do not transport anything. They just write contracts to to serve as an intermediary between the hospitals and the producers of, of supplies. So we're just going to focus on pharmaceuticals because that's what me in 2007, 2008, am starting to deal with problems. So in 2000, 2008, I'm suddenly not able to find certain medications to treat my patients whether it's a local anesthetic, whether it's a medication to help you go to sleep. If you're an oncologist, you might find certain chemotherapeutic agents that are known to be effective against the cancer. You're no longer able to get it. So the question is, why did this happen suddenly? And the reason is we go back in history to the 1980s, and it's with these group purchasing organizations and pharmacy benefit managers. So at the time, they asked Congress to remove, uh, create, with the Safe Harbor Act, Congress did it on the auspices of having Medicare get better drug deals by. Writing large contracts, and so they would get rebates back from these these group purchasing organizations. So a rebate is if, when you hear people talk about rebates in the pharmaceutical industry, they're basically talking about kickbacks. And what I mean by that is, if I'm a company who makes lidocaine, and this is a common local anesthetic, and I have to, I want my medication to get to hospitals. Well, the only way I can get access to the hospitals nowadays is through these group purchasing organizations. They control ninety percent of the hospital purchases in the country. So I can't just say, "Hey, Mister uh, GPO, I'd like my lidocaine to be available in your formula." They say you need to be a member. Well, a member obviously costs some money, and then they, the group purchasing organization will then offer a rebate or back to the hospital for purchasing through them. Uh, so this is so they're basically getting paid by the pharmaceutical company. They're getting or the I shouldn't say pharmaceutical, yeah, through the pharmaceutical, the producer of pharmaceuticals. And then that money then goes to the hospitals, some portion of it, of course, they pocket some of it as the middlemen. But what happens over time, now that Congress has allowed this, is that you're no longer able to produce one drug because they as they keep increasing the cost to be a member of this organization for the pharmaceutical companies. Now, I can't, as an innovative company, produce just one drug. I now have to produce two because it's maybe now it's $100,000 to be a member of this organization. And now it's like 500,000. So now I can't even produce two drugs. I need to have a margin of at least five to 10 drugs to, to get into this formulary. So of course what happens now is less and less people are in this market. There's obviously FDA regulations. There are all the inspections that happen. All those sorts of things were happening before as well, which somewhat restricts the ability for people to get into the market um, if you're an innovative person who makes one thing. But what happens by over time is that you have less and less people who are in this market. And by the time we hit the mid 2000s, we now have very few companies that can make generic medications. And when I by generic medications, I don't mean simple medicines like lidocaine necessarily. I mean things like normal saline, and if you know, normal saline is just IV fluid. So you would think something as simple to make as sodium chloride with water would be produced by hundreds of companies. Uh, but that's not the case. And so there are only three companies. And so this is not really a problem until you have supply chain problems like, let's say, a hurricane that rips through Puerto Rico. Now a hurricane rips through Puerto Rico, and most of the pharmaceutical companies have moved offshore onto Puerto Rico for tax reasons, ironically enough. And so now there's no normal saline in the country. So now if you go to the ER and you suddenly get sick, dehydrated, or you know, grandma gets has problems and she's fainting, well, now they're going to have her drink Gatorade because they don't have any access on, to normal saline. It's crazy. And it's the simplest thing you could make. So these drug shortages are becoming more and more frequent, and it's likely because these group purchasing organizations are causing these huge distortions in the market by requiring more and more in payment. And then the other half of it, of course, is why doesn't the hospital just find another alternative source for normal saline? And the reason is because of the rebates. Because if they were to go off formulary, they they violate the contract with the group purchasing organization. And now they've lost maybe $4 million. So of course, what will come no surprise to your listeners is that like seven of the top 10 um, healthcare companies in size are these GPOs and PBMs. So these group purchasing organizations. And not surprisingly, they contribute a lot of money to Congress. So in order to try and fix this problem, obviously you have to get rid of this safe harbor law to allow the ability for people who are innovators to come into the market. I mean, obviously we'd fix it right away. But that has to happen. But you have Express Scripts, which is one of the pharmacy benefit managers. I think they contributed like three million dollars in an off-election year last year to um, various members of Congress. So that's a lot of money that that um, that's sloshing around, and you can see where the money comes from, right? And they're making money hand over fist.
0: Yeah, we blame greed, but then also, but then it's like it's integrated into the the lust for you know getting power on your side.
1: It's their business model, and it, I'm sure they don't. And, you know, I'm sure that when they look at how it worked, it seemed very rational to them and seemed efficient and, you know, reasonable. And they did not foresee the fact that it would cause these shortages of medications because, you know, they'll point their fingers to all sorts of other things. And there are some validity to the fact that, you know, the FDA's, um, you know, inspections or the fact that the testing and all those sorts of things may cause um, some problems with the market. But ultimately, it's the fact that you just can't be someone who produces one or two drugs really well now you have to produce so many. So only these big companies left. And then when something happens, to the supply chain, a fire or a natural disaster. Now I don't have medication. And we're talking about for like six months, I might not have anything. And the greater tragedy, of course, is that we're very rich in this country. Well, guess where they're not very rich. Lots of pl- other places in the world. So when we have, if there's a shortage somewhere, we're getting it and they are getting nothing. Hmm.
0: Wow. Well, is is there anything to be optimistic about in medicine? I mean, do you see any see any changes that, that a libertarian would say oh, this this is good change?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's a donor to end on. But it's actually, I think, the fact that the, the Trump administration is looking into this, I think, is a good thing. Uh, when it comes to third party system, I think what's interesting is because of the um, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, it has accelerated the increase in premiums in this in this country. And so, what that has done is is it has turned many people with the deductible now that are you know $15,000, they're becoming shoppers for the first time in healthcare. <clears throat> and they're demanding transparency. They're demanding um, better, you know, better options. And they're more judicious in sort of how they're finding their medications at pharmacies. They may shop around a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, a $10,000 deductible, you're essentially self-pay for a lot of people. Yeah, for the most part. I'm- I mean, there's no better off than self-pay other than there's, well, I guess there's no fines anymore. But yeah, that just that. That there's such a high deductible. Yeah. I mean, I understand the concept of, you know, catastrophic insurance and stuff, but, you know, given the system the way it was, a 2000 $4,000 deductible is a lot more reasonable than like spending $1,200 a month and then having a $10,000 deductible. That's crazy.
1: Right. I- yeah, there's no question, and and um, but what that's what that's done is it opened up a window for people to look at alternative ways of caring for people. So you see an explosion in direct primary care, and if you're not familiar with that, it's basically a membership service for getting access to a primary care physician. So instead of having a traditional use your insurance and copays and all this sort of thing to get your your physician, now you're just paying a membership flat fee for access, twenty four seven access to a physician so you maybe pay $60 a month for or let's just yeah let's say $50 a month for um for access to the physician and then you can go in as many times as you need they can oftentimes many states they can prescribe uh not only prescribe medications but they can actually admit, uh, deliver it or I should say um they can dispense it and so you may get now a medication that was costing you say $20 a month is now like $1.50 uh and then which helps pay for your premium and you're getting better access to a physician who can sit down with you for 45 minutes. And they're not worried about checking boxes and not trying to get any qualify for any metrics. They're practicing medicine sort of the way Norman Rockwell imagined practicing medicine, right? When those pictures <laughs> where they get to know you and they, and, and for physicians, it's been very liberating because not many people go into medicine to make a big pile of money. Uh, I mean, people do and you get compensated well, but most people like to go there for the, the, either the challenge or the intellectual, um, uh, the rigor, and for the relationship and that you spend with patients, and and much of modern healthcare has worked endlessly and tirelessly to remove that the human contact with patients, and so this new trend of direct primary care, which again I think is on the cusp of really taking off, uh, is it, re, it brings that relationship back into the forefront, which is why most people went into uh, medicine, and so <clears throat> you're starting to see people come out of training, and med students are looking at this residents are looking at this and I think at some point patients are going to start demanding to have this sort of care too because this is better. I mean for $600 a month or a year you have access to a physician. So I think a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I think uh, a lot of the from the financial if you look at the Medicare for all argument I think the price tag is so tremendous it's it'll be a hard sell (laughs) Uh, just because every state who's kind of looked at it realized that it was you know insane. So the only way you could finance is with massive debt you know. I think there's at least enough resistance in Congress at this point to prevent that from happening.
0: Well, Eric, we've, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about two, uh, relatively different topics. And I just wanted to thank you for, uh, joining us for this episode of the Libertarian Christian podcast.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.